Nobody likes to call businesses to be stuck on hold listening to crappy hold music. If you run a business, when your customers need to reach you, they'd prefer to text rather than call or email. TextLine is a web-based software that lets you and your customers exchange text messages. When you sign up at TextLine.com, you'll get a new business phone number in your local area code that your customers can use to text you and your team. TextLine offers a 30-day free trial, but you can get a bonus free month if you sign up at TextLine.com slash Cast of Kings. That's TextLine.com slash Cast of Kings. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series, Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I haven't read most of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm David Robinson. I've read every book in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just tuning in for the first time, what we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode of Game of Thrones. We spoil everything through that week's episode, but we don't spoil anything from future weeks, and that includes anything on the next time on preview, as well as anything in the books that hasn't made its way onto the show yet. Find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can always email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash acastofkings. And for this week and next week, you can also text us uh, through the awesome sponsor that we have this week, textline.com. Uh, you can text us at 304-982-7971. That's 304-982-7971. Feel free to use that number to text us reactions to both this week as well as to the season finale of Game of Thrones happening next week. Uh, it should be a lot of fun, and uh, we appreciate textline.com for sponsoring us. Uh, and I think that's about it in terms of announcements. Uh, in terms of emails, not really much discussed this week, although uh, I do think we will be mentioning one or two emails throughout the course of this week's podcast. Uh, so all that being said, I, I think we should just get right into it. This week was Season 6, Episode 9, entitled Battle of the Bastards. And it was directed by Miguel Sapochnik, who uh, I think has directed Game of Thrones episodes before. He did Hard Home. He did Hard Home, which was a great episode. He also has directed uh, episodes of TV shows like True Detective. Uh, and he directed the movie Repo Men, which uh, had some really cool elements to it, but unfortunately wasn't very well received in the United States. Uh, but uh, definitely a guy with a lot of talent. And, you know, Joanna, in the past, we've discussed how uh, episode nines of seasons have tended to be, you know, uh, balls to the wall action, like, you know, let's pour all the budget into this one episode. And I think last season, we kind of questioned that was, whether that was the case, because I think Hard Home was episode eight last season, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I think they subverted the expectations last year. <laughs> That's right. And so uh, this year... It was, I was very curious if there would be some kind of knockdown dragout fight in Season 6, Episode 9. And uh, I think I can safely say that uh, this season continues the trend of Episode 9 being loaded with massive set pieces that are uh, visually and technically impressive. But does it mean anything, Joanna? That's the question we'll try to answer <laughs> on this week's episode of the podcast. First, let's talk about the stuff going on in Marine. Last week... 
Danny showed up at the end. She's super pissed uh, because her city was under siege. Tyrion and Danny try to have a conversation this week about what exactly is going on in Marine. You know, Tyrion's defending himself. Danny's super pissed. Uh, and there was some debate a couple episodes ago about whether or not Danny was going to become a villain in the show, right? That her speech in front of the Dothraki horde indicated her descent into madness and, you know, following in the footsteps of her father. Um, and I, I would say this episode proves that wrong, at least temporarily, right? That she uh, does still listen to reason, that she can still be reasoned with, that she's not just going to kill everyone and everything that stands in her way. Uh, what did you think of that? Did you agree with me that uh, this represents a kind of uh, a blunting of the hard edge of her character in that way? Yeah, I do. And I don't know that I ever really thought of it in as, as extreme terms as you just mentioned. But I think Daenerys taking the Dothraki horde to Westeros is still an unpredictable thing to do and the dragons as well. Uh, you know, and even the ironborn, she had to be like, okay, no raping guys. And they're like, but we love to rape. She's like, yep, but no raping. Okay. And they're like, okay, but who's to say that every single rapist, um, like on her team is going to listen to her. So, um, <clears throat> That's, that was more my point. But Weiss and Benioff uh, in the post-episode interview were very clear that Daenerys Targaryen is not crazy like her father, that she has a fierceness but not the as as unpredictable as he is. And yeah, and, and Tyrion – I've been I've been bitching all season about how they've been using Tyrion, and this is Tyrion as he's supposed to be used, which is like he has a good idea and is able to counsel her, and uh, this is this is the kind of behavior from him that I've really been missing. So I was I was delighted by his involvement. Yeah, uh, it was some good stuff, some good character work there, uh, where you see Tyrion actually being the smart and cunning person that we know him to be. And I was glad that he didn't just get put into a metaphorical doghouse uh, and prevented from doing anything more in this episode. Uh, he actually seems to be an active part in influencing the outcome of what happens with the Masters. So uh, they end up meeting the Masters uh, in a – I should say I thought everything about even the Marine attack sequence, overall I'd say maybe 80 to 90 percent of the CG – uh, which, you know, most of the scene was CG, but 80-90% of it I thought was pretty impressive. Uh, the opening shots of, like, the close-up of this, uh, I don't know, cannonball, whatever, whatever trebuchet. Spherical, trebuchet, spherical object they had. <laughs> uh, very impressive, and you see the, the destruction that it's wrought on Marine. So I was pretty impressed with uh, all, all the technical elements of the Marine storyline. Uh, and we see them meeting with the Masters in a safe location, away from all the havoc that's being wrought. And uh, they have a conversation about uh, who is going to surrender. Uh, and the Masters think Danny's going to surrender, and Danny thinks the Masters going to surrender. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be going super well for Danny until, surprise, Dragon sweeps in, uh, Drogon comes in. Uh, wakes up his two brothers, who, by the way, were still in that tomb the whole time, and uh -huh. then they go and just ruin one of those ships. Uh, but they only ruin one. They're not ruining a bunch because they apparently want to keep the ships and right. use them to get to Westeros. Uh, so I thought this is pretty effective, but it is kind of stuff we've seen from Danny a bunch of times before. Uh, what did you think of uh, this whole sequence? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I agree. It was visually very impressive. I don't really understand why the dragons were unchained in like episode two and then just sat there for a whole season so they could burst out here. But all three of them looked great together. Even the like Dothraki arrival and Dario sort of knocking the head off one of the sons of the harpy. I thought that was really great. And I thought it looked so much better than Daenerys' dragon riding scene last year. Right. I um, thought the CG, yeah, like yeah, the integration between uh, live action and CG, I thought was way better yeah. in this scene. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so it, sound, it feels like they really learned a lot uh, over the years. And so it, it looks pretty good overall. I mean, there's some moments where it's not so great, but overall, I'd say it's quite impressive. Uh, and... Yeah, uh, do you agree with me that the story beat kind of feels very similar, which is to say Danny gets herself in trouble and then Dragon comes into play somehow and saves the day. Uh what do you yes. how do you feel about that beat? I do, but I I think that there is at least a layer of like Tyrion's cunning on top of it, which is like don't crucify the masters, like strategically kill two of them, like set the men free who are working for them, like give them the option to leave, kill two of the masters, leave the third one alive to tell the tale of what he saw. Like there was at least some, you know, diplomacy and calculation there and it wasn't just brute force. And that's the marriage of Tyrion and Daenerys, which I've been sort of longing to see since he arrived in Marine. I thought I thought it was really great. Yeah, the metaphorical marriage because uh, later on they discuss real marriages with Daenerys potentially. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree that that's great stuff. I think... In this episode, you have characters who are behaving stupidly. You know, I think that's not too much of a stretch to say. And in the scene with the Masters uh, where they say, oh, take this guy. He's lowborn and of lower class than us and less important than us. The idea that the Masters would think that that would prov- provoke the reaction they're looking for felt slightly far-fetched to me. Um, not as far-fetched as some of the stuff later in this episode, but... It did feel like this is a reaction meant to reach this satisfying result in the script uh, and not necessarily something that was organic. Did you have that problem or is that just me? No, I mean, I think you're right. Um, And I didn't feel any like surprise as to what Grey Worm did necessarily. Yeah, it's just like, okay, if you say that. How can you think that's going to result in what you want? I know. If you're you know? appealing to a slave, like <laughs> yeah. maybe maybe don't be like, this guy, us, so poor. Kill him. He's nothing. Come on. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Fair you, enough. Where's your head, slave masters? But this is the most interesting thing that Grey Room has gotten to do all season. So yeah. I was like kind of grateful for that. And I, I agree that the – Marine stuff is all in all everyone behaving much smarter than most of the people in the North. So I appreciated that by comparison. There's also this confrontation, as we've already alluded to earlier, between Tyrion and Danny and Yara and Theon. Uh, I read some complaints about like how quickly they traveled from Volantis to... A marine? Oh. I have no idea how far apart they are, so I don't know how... I mean, who even knows at this point what time it is? <laughs> like, I don't even know, like, when Theon and Yara were in. Like, we know that Theon left Sansa. <laughs> like, we know how long it's been since Theon and Sansa were together. And right. that's about it for our perspective of Theon. But we don't know how it lines up with Danny's storyline. It's like, it, all of these things are not taking place at the same time. Right. I think is the easiest way to understand what happens on Game of Thrones. Uh, that being said, it's been months since Theon left Sansa, right? Because he went to the Iron Islands and then he went all the way to Essos and then he went to uh, Marine. Uh, so, uh, listeners, Sansa's not pregnant. <laughs> the end. 
That is the most silly theory, and we, we can discuss it later on in this episode. I would actually like to say a few things about that later on in the episode. It is fascinating to consider, though. It's like when you look up at the stars, you know, the Milky Way and stuff, you're seeing light from planets and stars that is, you know, thousands of years, if not millions of years old. And yeah. maybe those stars are dead by now. That's kind of what it's like watching Game of Thrones because, you know, maybe the battle that happened this week already happened three months ago in the main timeline of King's Landing or whatever. Uh, we don't know. Uh, I mean, we, we probably can piece it together. But just point being, don't I think, take I think the timeline. Trying, I think trying to understand the timeline of Game of Thrones is just like an exercise in losing your sanity. I agree. There's so I many think. other things to complain about. In this <laughs> no, I no, but I just, I just mean that like – I I'm all for traveling time. I think if it happens within an episode, I'm I'm more inclined to be persnickety about it. But if it happens like you know, if 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 a pair of characters are gone, for, were they in no one? Were they in last week's episode, Yara and Theon, or was that two episodes ago? I don't think they were in last week's episode. Yeah, I think it was two weeks ago that they were in the brothel. And so if like you know, it took them a span of an episode to get to Marine, I'm not worried about it. Uh. <laughs> Speaking of the brothel uh, from a few weeks ago, we never commented on the show, I think, about the fact that we find out that Yara is uh, theoretically a lesbian, or at least bi, uh, and that's kind of hinted at again in this episode. Uh, I guess... I feel like we talked about it. I mean, we may not have explicitly said bisexual or lesbian or whatever, but we talked about her interactions with the woman right. in the brothel. Right. Uh, yeah, us feeling that sexual tension... Between Daenerys and Yara, and are you shipping was, that relationship, Jana? I will say this: in the books, Daenerys sleeps with her female handmaidens, so hmm. I'm not. I don't think it's off the table, and not just like to learn how to please Khal Drogo. Like she just does it sometimes. Hmm. So I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. I'm I'm into it. I did think there was that great line when. Yara says, you know, I'm up for anything. Like, she's she's not going <laughs> to require Danny marry her, but uh, she's open to the idea, and really, who wouldn't be? So uh, I, thought, I thought this was Yara's, like, Gemma Whelan as Yara. I thought this was her best scene. I thought she was so good in this scene. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect from the Greyjoys meeting up with the Targaryens and the Lannisters, but I really like it. I like this union. So, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, the conflict between Tyrion and Theon, I should say the tension between them. Uh, I think they haven't been in the same scene since season one, I want to say, right? They haven't... Season one, episode four. Right, yeah, so crazy. Uh, And uh, there is a lot of emotional satisfaction to be found in a scene like that where where Theon, you know, remember how uh, cocksure, uh, no pun intended, and uh, arrogant he was back then, and then... Uh, now to be laid so low and then for Tyrion to kind of walk all over him, uh, there's a special poignancy to the fact that we've it's been years since we've seen these characters together. Go ahead, what were you going to say? Well, so, uh, you know, Tyrion has that line where he's like, last time we met in Winterfell, you made fun of my height. Well, look at us now, motherfucker. Uh, basically, right? And um, I – so I went back and watched the scene, the last scene that they had together today to sort of like see what, what Theon said. And actually – that scene between them in the Winterfell courtyard, Tyrion's the one being the condescending cocky dick 
to Theon. He's it was we talked about this on the off season podcast, season one podcast that we did, but Tyrion is basically burdened with an exposition dump about what happened to the Greyjoys yeah, in that, that scene. Yeah. yeah, so he basically has to make fun of Theon for how like his family failed and how he was like taken prisoner by the Starks and is so low, you know. And the only thing that Theon fires back at him is he calls him imp, and that's it. And so I either Tyrion has a real crap memory. Or the show just decided to rewrite history to mm. make for more dramatic tension in that scene, you know? Because you're right. The the better story is Theon was the cocksure bully who now is this, like, meek-mannered whatever. But Tyrion was actually the bully in that scene and back in season one. So I don't know. You can go back and watch it if you want or not. But mm. I, I guess I do vaguely remember Theon being an overall asshole. In he the was. first parts of season one, so that—that's sure I just with that vague memory, I just assumed that Tyrion was telling the truth. Um, but uh, maybe the episode, this week's episode, Joanna, is a commentary on how memory can twist, distort feelings we have for each other. Do you ever think of that? <laughs> ever consider that one, Joanna Robinson? Yeah, ever hear of that fan theory? Uh, I don't think so. Anyway, uh, the other thing that we should mention is. This is a situation where uh, the Greyjoys are asking for independence in exchange for uh, their help in, uh, you know, joining Danny and defeating whatever forces she may face at King's Landing across the Narrow Sea, uh, and potentially a taste of things to come for Danny in the sense that. Uh, she is not so intent on ruling everyone, you know, to the extent that she, Danny, does not demand. You know, absolute loyalty and and fealty, and she's uh, she's willing to allow them to have independence so long as they don't rape and pillage. Yeah, I thought it's, that was pretty cool, and I liked how Tyrion was like, "Uh, what if everyone demands like independence?" She's like, "Well, they can ask, and I can take it on a case by case basis. Yeah, it's fine. Take yeah, it on a case by case." Danny seemed pretty lax about ruling the seven seven kingdoms. I thought it was a great interaction. I agree. What is also interesting is this idea that Danny now has amassed uh, a pretty formidable force. I mean, between the three fully grown dragons, a Dothraki horde, and the Unsullied, uh, that is a pretty large and diverse set of obstacles for anyone uh, to overcome if they were going to go up against her. Uh, and maybe even though we saw similar story beats repeated again and again, the whole point of that last four or five seasons of Danny was to get to this point where she has all these resources at her disposal. Uh, what do you think of that? Um, I guess. I just feel like maybe we <laughs> could have gotten there more efficiently. Could, could we have taken a few <laughs> shortcuts, please? <laughs> uh, yeah, she does, she does have a, a huge uh, martial force behind her, for yes. sure. Did we really need this, the season where she was wandering around the desert for eight episodes? But you'd be surprised. Uh, like, I, I was rewatching when Stannis attacked, when Stannis arrives in um, the Battle for Castle Black, the episode after that in season four, when Stannis and his cavalry arrive north of the wall and sort of surround Mance Raider, he has so many men. He has so many men, and they all died last season. Like, right? They either died or ran away. But, like, the fact that he had that huge force, and they're just gone. And then in the Battle of the Bastards, we saw other large forces just completely decimated. So, you know, despite the fact that it seems like Daenerys, you know, can't lose with her team, 
uh, armies tend to get lost on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, now and now and again. So you know, who knows? It was really nice to finally see uh, the tactical advantage that the dragons would give her. You know, like to see them actually uh, be used in a battle. Uh, we've seen them used before to scare people off and kill a few people, but I don't think we've ever seen them like destroy a ship before, have we? Or destroy like major military strategic assets in the way that they did this episode? I think the precision of it feels new. Like we've seen, um, you know, we've seen them sort of take on a city before, but not in such a controlled way where Daenerys can basically, however she said it, yeah. uh, caw, caw at them. Well, she says Dracarys, but like the the footnote of her Dracarys was like, but the ship only, please, because I need the rest. Thank you. <laughs> like she somehow yeah. was able to direct, like control the force, the blast. And so that feels new and pretty cool. Because before, yeah, it just seems like the dragons were these wild children that she couldn't control. And they were, you know, tearing around the landscape, landside, um, the countryside eating sheep and that sort of stuff and maybe children. Um, and but she no. can control them now because reasons? Like yeah, be- we- be- because reasons. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know if that was made <laughs> clear in the show. I mean, time and time and reasons, I think. Yeah. You know what is a really good way of communicating with people, though, Joanna Robinson? What's that? Texting. Because a lot of people, they don't like making phone calls anymore. What's the last time you made a phone call, Joanna? It was a long time ago, right? <laughs> It's at least been hours. For the purpose (laughs) of this ad read, it was definitely quite a while ago. So long ago. Uh, I don't even know how to dial anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone has moved from voice calls and email to texting as the preferred method of chatting with friends and family. Uh, But it is difficult to text businesses because a lot of them have landlines. And, you know, those landlines, they don't have nice screens that you can use to text people back. It's uh, quite a conundrum. But fortunately, there's a service that can help with this. It's called textline.com. And they are trying to make businesses textable. Only 20% of emails are opened by a recipient from a business typically. And only 6% of emails get responses. Whereas 98% of text messages are opened and 45% get responses. So plenty of people regret texting clients or customers from their personal phones uh, eventually, too many strangers are texting about all hours. With TextLine, you can go offline and disconnect from your work SMS number. Uh, Joanna, I think you've you've encountered this actually in reality. You uh, made the mistake of forwarding your text line numbers to your actual phone. You say uh, mistake. I say delightful advantage. <laughs> <laughs> but you got slammed with texts uh, a few weeks ago when TextLine was a sponsor. Uh, that is a totally optional feature. For text lines. Yes. You don't have to do that. <laughs> you don't and have I was, to do that. Like, I, got, I got like, I don't know, whatever, 100 text messages in one night uh, during one episode that we had a sponsorship with them. And, and then I've gotten just a few every now and again since. And then last night I got a very reasonable amount, not over 100. <laughs> I got a very reasonable amount. But if you guys want to text us, uh, you know, TextLine is our sponsor next week as well. So if you want to yeah. slam me with text during the finale, my phone that that night that happened, my phone was in like a weird place. I couldn't get to it. So it was just like dinging from another room Nice all night. So this is kind of fun because then I know you guys are out there uh, <laughs> messaging me 
uh, poop emojis. That's the thing that happens. So <laughs> you can text us at three zero four nine eight two seven nine seven one. But yeah, Joanna's uh, situation is not necessarily the norm because no, you can no. manage all your texts on a browser. It's pretty awesome. You can see them all there. Uh, respond and share that dashboard with a bunch of people who you work with. So it's a super convenient service. And for a limited time, we have a special offer. Uh, you can go to textline.com/castakings, and you can get a free bonus month if you sign up at that URL. So you typically already get 30 days with no commitment required. But if you sign up after visiting textline.com/castakings, your promo code gets you an additional 30 free days, which will be applied automatically. Uh, so we love Textline; it's super convenient, and you can always text us at 304-982. Uh, 7971. That's textline.com slash cast of kings. Textline.com slash cast of kings. Thanks to them for sponsoring us. Uh, and Joanna, let's just get into the names right now, huh? Um, oh, let's do it. There's only a few left. Uh, so we got to thank all the people that contributed to our Kickstarter uh, this season. Joanna, you have some names to thank? Yeah, I've got uh, Gerland Bearland, Dan, Dan Chamberlain, Philip Sway. Uh, Jennifer Trice, Paul Impelazeri. <laughs> Impelazeri. Nice. I should have just looked at the real name. Okay. Joseph Borland, Justin Bartholomew, Ken Dioro, and Karen Ford. Thanks to Che Wilkinson in Austin, Texas, Danielle and Eddie Rock, Marlene Chavez, Leigh Wallent, Lauren Lee Chen, John Perez, Brandon, John J. Perez, Brandon S. Turner, Alex Wenkis, Jane Orenstein, and Ryan Hoiberg from Melbourne, Australia. Thank you all. Lee, Lee Wallant. Lee Wallant? What did I say? Lay. Lay? Okay, my bad. Lee Wallant. Sorry about that. No, Um, we had to go out with one, like, one mispronunciation of a pretty standard name yeah i think that's a classic way to go out yeah. definitely and thanks to everyone for contributing to our kickstarter that should be all the names so if you didn't get your name read for some reason feel free to email us at castingkings at gmail.com we'll make that right next episode but um that sh- we should have read everyone's name all 420 or so people who donated to our kickstarter so thanks so much everyone you guys are the best and thanks to textline.com slash cast of kings for sponsoring this episode Let's get into uh, the final plot line for this episode. Joanna, I think this is one of the few times where uh, there's only been two locations, right? Or two plot lines in one episode. Uh, it's happened a few other times, but it's, it's very rare that we only focus on two locations in an episode. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you you seem pretty apprehensive of that. I Why? just don't want to commit to anything. Uh you know, <laughs> Battle of Blackwater cut back and forth between um you know, Sansa and Cersei and the Sept and then the battle itself. Uh that's technically one location, King's Landing, but it's kinda two. Um but yeah, two is two is rare. Two is pretty rare. But what's interesting to me, and I read about this last week, what was really fascinating to me is that HBO was really trying to advertise this as a single battle episode. They hid all of the marine stuff from episode description from, well, the episode description is really vague, but from like promo photos, trailers, everything. It was all Battle of the Bastards because they've been touting this Battle of the Bastards since, you know, I think a month before the season started. There was a big 
interview and of course Entertainment Weekly where they were talking about how much they spent on the battle, how was the biggest thing they'd ever done. They named the episode The Battle of the Bastards. So I think they wanted to sort of sell it as this single battle episode. But, you know, a lot of fans nicknamed this episode The Battle of Ice and Fire. And I think that's even cooler. And I, I don't know why they would hide that they like, in addition to this great Battle of Bastards, you're going to get bonus three CGI dragons and it's going to be awesome. Like, I, I, I don't quite understand the marketing strategy, but... uh it like leaked a couple days early that there was going to be some marine stuff uh, in like via a UK publication and HBO like wouldn't confirm it to me. It, so it was just all very weird. That's all I'll say. This is this is a uh, this is inside baseball that you guys don't care about. So let's go. On the episode. Can, can we say that Battle of the Bastards is kind of a terrible and anachronistic title, though? Or do you do you think it's an awesome title? I just feel like this really hits home the earlier email that we got this season about how the titles, episode titles have been kind of weak this season. I feel like Battle of the Bastards, it's, it's like something you'd read on a monster truck poster. It's not something that I would expect to find in a title for a Game of Thrones episode. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's the first uh, battle that the, sh- the writers got to name themselves Right, like, <laughs> right, because all the other ones have been named in the books. You're saying, right, right. Hard home ha- happens off screen, but it's named for the location. Blackwater, Battle of Castle Black, like these are the names you know. And they're like, oh, we're gonna do our own battle this year, guys, and it's gonna be Battle of the Bastards. I mean, that's kind of it. Felt very <laughs> like Monster Truck Rally, but broy to it me. It felt very broy, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it, it just it felt out of place to me. Um, yeah, I agree with that. That is a very minor nit because pretty much everything else I'm going to say about this episode. So I've been pretty negative so far, but everything else about this episode, I think I'm going to say is positive. And I know I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I'm alone in this, but uh, I thought this episode was incredible and one of the finest hours of TV ever. Not just in Game of Thrones history, like in television history, but uh, we will get to that. We will get to that. So uh, this episode at Winterfell begins with a uh, parlay between all the parties. Ramsay Bolton, Jon Snow, and his his troops are there. And they try to negotiate. Ramsay says, hey, look, if you uh, bow the knee, then I will let all you people live. Uh, And Jon Snow really not having that. I mean, let let me ask you this question, not that it matters. Do you think Ramsay was telling the truth? No, I never yeah. think Ramsey's telling the truth. Yeah, there's no way he was going to let them live. So no. Uh, but uh, it's cool that he kind of has the uh, Karstarks, right? And the, the Umber guy is there as well, right? The uh, Small John Umber. Small John Umber. They're kind of they're kind of their own little team of dudes now. <laughs> and uh, team team of evil. <laughs> yeah, they're, <laughs> they're a little team of evil. And uh, they have a tense confrontation, and it doesn't end with any resolution. They just say, hey, we're going to meet back tomorrow, and it's all going to go down. Dabo, well, should ahead. we talk about the Rickon thing and how Ramsey said he had Rickon? Please proceed. Okay. Just, you know, that this is like a big emotional wrench to throw into everything and how they proved it with the dire wolf, like tossing the dire wolf head out again, which I think was meant to remind us how much we hate small John Umber. And uh, we also got a really great pissy reaction shot from Leanna Mormont in that scene. And then she was in this episode for one shot. And, and it, it was, was perfect. Amazing. Yeah. And then, uh, and then Sansa just being like, 
you know, basically, you know, when Tyrion went out to to meet the masters, he's like, we're here to negotiate your surrender, motherfuckers. And that's kind of what Sansa said to Ramsay. She's like, you're going to be the one to go down, uh, Ramsay, and I'm not afraid of you. And Ramsay, you know, and then she left. And then Ramsay also, of course, tried to manipulate, emotionally manipulate John by talking about having Sansa back in his bed because he's disgusting. And uh, yeah, that was a it was a great parlay. I thought. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, this show is full of great parlays, I would say, and this is a particularly good one. And then they have a conversation back at camp uh, that is pretty awkward, I thought, with Sansa saying, well, why don't you listen to me? And then John's like, well, what do you want me to do? And she's like, I don't know. Uh, she just knows that, that Ramsay is going to trick him somehow. I thought this scene was kind of pointless because it wasn't like Sansa was offering anything. She wasn't bringing anything to the table. This is where the episode like went immediately into the crapper for me. Yeah, I mean, like she wasn't bringing Sansa anything. with Sansa withholding information made me so angry, and I'm angry. I was angry for the rest of the episode about it. So, mm. all right, tell me, what should we do? How do we get Rickon back? We'll never get him back. Rickon is Ned Stark's trueborn son, which makes him a greater threat to Ramsay than you, a bastard, or me, a girl. As long as he lives, Ramsay's claim to Winterfell will be contested, which means he won't live long. We can't give up on our brother. Listen to me, please. He wants you to make a mistake. Of course he does. What should I do differently? I don't know. I don't know anything about battles. Just, just don't do what he wants you to do. Oh, that's good advice. You think that's obvious? Well, it is a bit obvious. If you had asked for my advice earlier, I would have told you not to attack Winterfell until we had a larger force. Or is that obvious When too? will we have a larger force? We've pleaded with every house that'll have us. The Blackfish can't help us. We're lucky to have this many men. It's not enough. No, it's not enough. It's what we have. Because uh, John, John asks her, what should we do? Right. And she says, you know, because like she's frustrated that he's not listening to her because she has an insight into Ramsay. And he says, what should we do? She doesn't have any suggestions except don't fall into his trap, which was which was good advice that John didn't listen to. Yes. And then uh, and then he's like, well, we don't have enough men. Like, what are we going to do? We don't have enough men. And she doesn't say, hey, I wrote Littlefinger. He might be coming with a knife of the veil. I'm not sure. But like, just here's some information. A crap ton of guys on horses could be coming. So maybe we want to see about that before we go charging off or adjust our strategy somehow. I've seen a lot of people defend what Sansa did here, and I find it completely indefensible that well, she didn't share that information. David H. from Los Angeles texted us at 304-982-7971. Uh, just watched episode nine, that battle scene, the visuals, the sound, the editing. Everything was amazing with the exception of the writing, which was inexcusably awful. To preserve the drama of Littlefinger swooping into the rescue, the writers had Sansa withhold crucial information from Jon with no discernible motivation. Her failure to let Jon know that she'd sent for an army makes her complicit in the horror of that battle. They literally I, only had to wait for an hour, <laughs> sacrificing the integrity of a main character to bend the plot into a pretty shape is an insulting thing to watch, and it totally undercut the satisfaction of uh, the climax. I completely agree. There was no reason. Like I've heard. A million people today come at me with reasons why Sansa did what she did, but I disagree with all of them. I think there was no reason other than Weiss and Benioff uh, wanted a last-minute cavalry arrival and for it to be a surprise. And for viewers who haven't necessarily been 
super tracking the, sh- the show this season to think that John's going to lose because they don't expect the Knights of the Veil to show up. Um, you know, those of us who like figured out the Saints I was writing to Littlefinger or whatever knew the Knights of the Veil were coming, so there was no tension there. But for some people, I'm sure it was a surprise. They're like, well, John's going to die because that's what happens in Game of Thrones. But for me, it just seemed like this you, – you had Sansa behave completely – out of character. I guess this is her character this season where she's just withholding and and duplicitous and terrible. And like I love Sansa and I want to root for Sansa, but her weird distrust of John, I know she's been I know she's been brutalized, she's been abused. If she has trust issues, I do understand that. But like when Brienne asked her why she didn't share information with John, she had no response. And like I just don't understand it. Her little smile when the Knights of the Vale come out, like yeah, I think she was complicit in the slaughter that happened at the battle. And it it really bothers me. She, I mean, like, there are other ways in which she's calculating that I can kind of get behind. Like, when she says, rightly, that there was no way they were going to get Rickon back, that he was going to die no matter what. Yeah, that was good. And, th- good and advice. that she was like, he was a pawn that they needed to sacrifice for their game. It's heartless, uh, but it was right and it was correct. But not telling John, deeply inexcusable, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, and to the surprise point, someone texted to us, this is the third time we've seen a surprise army come and save the day at the last second of an episode nine battle on the show. At least at Battle of the Blackwater and the Battle of the Wall, it was a surprise. Uh, I agree. There was no telegraphing of Tywin showing up at Blackwater or Stannis showing up at Battle of Castle Black. Um, And in this, we had it twice because there was not just um, the Knights of the Vale, but there's also like the the Dothraki. I mean, the Dothraki, I guess, are not a surprise. They were also sort of this like big cavalry thing that came in. And yeah, it's a it's a thing that it's not necessarily show's fault because it's a thing that George R. R. Martin leans on. And I read about this today on the site, but like. I think it has to do with his crush on on Tolkien because Tolkien had the same problems too with like a lot of people compared the Knights of the Vale showing up to Gandalf and the Rohirrim showing up in the Two Towers. You know, they were like, they come and they save the day. But there's also like the Ents showing up or the Eagles showing up. Like this is a thing that Tolkien does all the time to get out of these like big epic fantasy battles. Uh, and I think Martin falls into that trap as well. So. I did receive one email, so I know you've apparently gotten many explanations. There is one explanation that uh, we received from Joshua G, who wrote into a cast of kings at gmail.com that uh, is probably the sort of most plausible explanation that would save this from being just downright terrible writing. And uh, Joshua writes in, <laughs> I love the, firstly, I love the subject line of this email. Is Sansa a strategic mastermind or a moron? That's the question in the subject line. <laughs> the, the email proceeds Is Sansa Stark a massive dipshit for not telling John about the Knights of the Vale, or a master strategist who knew that Ramsay would never leave the relative safety of Winterfell if he didn't think he could easily crush the paltry Stark forces, and also knew that John would never attack if he knew the reinforcements were incoming? That's the only way I can explain away that otherwise totally inexplicable decision. I honestly don't know what the show wants me to think, end quote. Uh, which, the, the show apparently has broken Joshua's brain. <laughs> I, heard that, I heard that explanation a lot today, or variations on that explanation. And, like, if that's true, that makes Sansa a monster, right? Because she sent John to, to the slaughter as a gambit to draw Ramsay out. And I don't want to believe you say, When you say monster, you mean master strategist, right? You mean uh, someone who's monster. willing to do what is necessary to get the job done, right? I mean, that's what you mean, right? Uh, sure. <laughs> A.K.A. a monster. 
He's her brother, right? Like, well, like half brother. Half brother who she's like never been nice to. And uh, like a lot of people pointed out to me, and this is true, Sansa was always the worst Stark. And that's kind of true. I mean, like, I like Sansa. Well, actually, I think Rickon was the worst Stark. But like, I like Sansa a lot. I like all the growth. I have really felt for her and her journey. But if you go back to season one, of course, Sansa is the shittiest Stark. Like, she's an asshole. Uh, she's, a, she's a silly teenage girl, but she's an asshole, too. She gets, you know, she gets the dire wolf killed uh, at the yeah. early on. Because um, she yeah, refuses... I, I mean, but I don't know and about her that, mom, her mom did similar things. Her mom uh, withheld information about, like, releasing Jamie Lannister. Like, her mom did secretive things. Uh, Rob sent troops to slaughter in season one as a diversionary tactic. But none of those troops were his own brother. Like, it's just... I I can't buy that explanation. I I don't have an explanation. Uh, I'm assuming we're going to get something from her next week. But I hope Leanna Stark kicks her in the shins for this, at bare minimum. Hmm. Um, well, I will just say that I didn't necessarily, you know, believe in uh, that that interpretation of events, like Joshua's interpretation of why she might have done it. But that is a plausible interpretation. You know, it is it is a plausible retelling of why this might have gone down the way it, it, it did it's quite a stretch you know because it's not certainly not in the text because they don't talk about it at all john's not like wtf mate you know sansa why didn't you tell me <laughs> earlier well uh, we might we might get that next week i hope know. so i hope yeah. so but that yeah that confrontation never happens well joanna here's a plot line that did kind of get tied up this week the figurine that davos gave to shireen a year ago uh, remember that? Because it was been previously on Game of Thrones. Just in case you forgot. Where he gives her this, uh, he gives her this figurine. It's a stag. Yeah, and I think, it's a... I think uh, this scene having emotional impact is dependent on you believing that things have just been too busy for uh, things have been too busy for Davos to determine how Shireen actually died until this point, right? Uh, and. It's apparently never come up the specifics of her death. Is that right? I think that's what we're supposed to interpret from this, right? Yeah, he's sort of like asked her vaguely a couple times this season, I think. But yeah, it just like I, asked Melisandre, you mean? Yeah, light yeah. comes at you fast, man. And sometimes <laughs> you don't have time to interrogate uh, the Red Witch about the death of your little uh, reading partner. Yeah, that's right. If you don't slow down, you might not interrogate the Red Witch. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Ferris Bueller would say, I think. So, um, yeah, I, it doesn't make any sense that this has been held off all season. And also Melisandre sort of went into like uh, Game of Thrones limbo for <laughs> several episodes when they were out campaigning. Like we, I, when's the last time we saw her? Four episodes ago? Something like yeah, that? it's been a maybe? while. Uh, anyway. But what I, uh, what I did like was the kind of almost meta-ish conversation that John has with Melisandre where she, he's asked her what advice she has and she says you should win and uh, then she says I don't know what the Lord of Light is planning maybe uh, maybe you will die who knows what's going to happen but really if John was brought back just to die again you know that would be pretty dumb don't you think 
<laughs> like, what was the whole point of him coming back to life if not to win this battle? A lot of people said that kind of killed the tension for them. Would it be dumb or would it be like a cool subversion of expectations of like now you think he's the chosen one because he's been resurrected and he's part of this prophecy we suspect. And, you know, Melisandre basically calls him bulletproof. Um, and so- I think it would be mildly dumb because we've already seen Melisandre get it wrong already. You know, that she thought this guy was Stannis guy was going to do the thing. What if like what if John dies and then Melisandre just sets herself on fire? <laughs> <laughs> Like, that's it. I give up. Anyway, uh, no, I just mean sort of to subvert the hero story, which is what Game of Thrones used to do sometimes and doesn't anymore. Um, Might be kind of interesting. But I was not rooting for Jon to die. But I'm just saying, like, I don't think it would be outside the realm of what we've seen on Game of Thrones. Like... Oberyn's death, like Oberyn should have won, but he didn't, you know, or, or, you know, Ned or Catelyn or Rob, like these deaths subvert the hero narrative. And like a lot of people argue that there, that was just like, those were just satellite heroes. And the real heroes at the center are Arya and Jon, maybe Bran and Tyrion and Daenerys, and they've got to make it all the way through. But I think that's kind of boring and not what I signed up for when I started Game of Thrones. Uh, I guess I would say that this is the first time we've seen a major character get revived. And so for them to get revived and then not do anything of consequence, I feel it would it would subvert even the typical uh, subversion that usually goes on. You know what I mean? Um, so whether or not that would actually be a good thing or not, who can say? But uh, I'm glad that John got to do something of consequence, put it that way. Anything else happen back at camp before the big battle the next day? Yeah, Davos and Tormund had this great conversation um, where they talked about kings and following kings. It's one of these moments in a battle episode that I really like that I think some of the other battle episodes have had more of and that this episode could have used more of these like smaller character moments. Uh, But I really loved the conversation between the two of them and sort of following Mance and following Stannis and what it means to follow a king and, and, and that sort of thing. And then, of course, Davos goes off to take his, like, fear crap or whatever it is that he said he wanted to do, uh, shit his little heart out, and then um, he found Shireen's uh, figurine. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and that shot was beautiful, too, when he finds yes. it. Whether that figurine would have survived uh, getting Shireen getting burned alive, who's to say, but emotional <laughs> moment nonetheless. Do you think this is going to lead to some conflict between Davos and Melisandre, Joanna? I do. I think retribution's on its way. Mm, I think. Mm, interesting. All right. We shall see. Then they uh, they go into battle. Um, Ramsey Bolton presents Rickon and says, hey, go run to – like, you, you know, this is Ramsey's final betrayal of uh, decency. You know, this is not something a anyone with honor would ever do, which is to send a kid running – uh, towards his brother and uh, shoot arrows until he's dead. Uh, I will say I've never cared more about Rickon than at this moment when he's running. And this whole sequence I thought was really well edited because uh, you really get a sense of like, oh, this urgency of Rickon's trying to get there. Uh, and then John essentially completely disregards everything that Sansa said. And maybe, um, you know, Jonah, maybe that's why Sansa didn't tell John is because. He's clearly proven himself an idiot in this scene where he's falling right for the trap that Ramsey has set. What do you think? No. <laughs> okay. 
Um, all right. I oh. mean, he is an idiot. He's an idiot. Well, <laughs> listen, like we would be yelling at him if he just sat there while Ramsey got skewed, uh, while Rickon got skewered with arrows, right? Like there was no winning. Yeah. There's no winning. He's, that a, he's in a no win situation, pretty much. Davos maybe put them, uh, like the real problem, I think. Like John did this thing. You can't really blame him. It's his brother. He's trying to save him. Uh, Ramsey lured him into arrow range so that he could shoot at him. And then Davos is the one who gave the command to send the rest of the soldiers after John. Davos should have just let uh, John get arrowed to death, honestly, because he made a stupid move. And they had a plan, a pincer attack. They had a whole plan. Instead, Davos, they were the ones Davos, that got pincered. Davos knew the plan, and he should have stuck to the plan. Uh, John, we can kind of forgive because matters of the heart. But uh, Davos should have let cooler heads prevail and not sent their sad, sad cavalry after John because yeah. it was just a disaster. So, yeah, yeah. It, it was bad. And then follows saving private Westeros or whatever you want to call it, saving private <laughs> thrones, uh, an, an exceptionally well executed uh, battle sequence that takes place, you know, uh, through various stages of the battle, various editing styles were used. There's this one long continuous shot or a, a shot made to look like one long continuous shot where John's just killing dudes left and right. This horse is flying in and trampling over people. Uh, and then John almost gets suffocated amongst a pile of dead bodies. And yeah. uh, the battle ebbs and flows, but mostly it's Ramsey winning. And then at the last second, uh, Littlefinger and his men ride in. Uh, and yeah, what did you think of this whole thing, Joanna? Did you do you take some pleasure at the spectacle? You know, the the technical wizardry of this scene. <laughs> I did. I mean, I watched. There is an uh, video and anatomy of the scene is what they called it. Really, it was the anatomy of the episode uh, on HBO Go, and I think it's on YouTube for this episode, uh, which is about twelve minutes long, and it's really pretty, very impressive what they pulled off. Like, uh, you know, I've got my definite issues of this episode, but the the what seems like a continuous shot on John as he's like dodging arrows and dodging horses and slicing people down and that sort of stuff that is like dazzling yeah it incredible. looks so good and and when you watch the behind the scenes there's no arrows they're all cg so you just see like kit harrington duck and like all this stuff but i mean just to pull that off just really really incredible or like he also um they also said in the interview that when john is sort of staring down that line of horses uh that that was 100 real that wasn't cg um so yeah, no. That's I mean, ama- that's amazing because it looks incredibly dangerous, right? But they, yeah, I think they use some camera trickery, uh, like some very long lenses, to make it right. appear as though the horses were closer to him. So, uh, which is what long lenses do. They kind of compress the distance between objects. Uh, but it just is so beautiful. And a lot of slow motion usage, which is uh, not something that Game of Thrones typically does, right? There's very little slow motion in the show. So when they use it, it's gorgeous and amazing and striking, all, like even more so than if they use slow motion throughout the whole series a lot. So, uh, uh, yeah, and I, like you can tell that Weiss and Benioff went f- like full military nerd on this because they were like excitedly talking about civil war battles that they had aped and you know Roman sort of well please don't yell at me I'm about to use phalanx incorrectly because I think you have to be like in a a square formation to be a phalanx but like the shield like the moving the shields and the long spears moving forward in tandem with the like coordinated like sound like that was great I thought that was really cool um I just think that they were so in love with this 
battle that they had designed that they contorted the characters. Like, I wouldn't you have rather John actually be a good military tactician in this battle and win because he has learned so much about fighting that he could win this, like, using his brain? Right, as opposed to basically being a dummy. Yeah, Yeah. uh, being stupid and then a deus ex machina saving him, basically, right? A deus ex machina bird. Um, Oh. Oh. We've talked a lot about... (laughs) Who? Who? I can't take credit for that. That's that's Twitter. But, like, I talked a lot uh, recently about what is and isn't a deus ex machina. I don't know if this actually technically counts as one. But, uh, yeah, being saved last minute by the cavalry arriving means that... Sansa is like a withholding asshole. John is not a smart military tactician. And I would just much rather them working together and being smart about things. And right. Rickon ran in a straight line rather than zigzagging, which everyone wanted him to do to avoid those arrows. So just the Starks being like very dumb but winning anyway. I would say is, that's is, the most forgivable crime uh, <laughs> was, you know, because when you're a kid and you might die and you're trying to get to John as quickly as possible – uh, I think it's okay that you might not have thought to zigzag, uh, but uh, fair enough, fair enough about the other stuff uh, and the Starks not being super smart about it. But maybe, you know, Joanna, I heard all this talk like five minutes ago on this podcast about how you wanted uh, Game of Thrones to subvert expectations, you know, what, like maybe that's what the show is doing. It's saying, hey, you can be stupid and still win. But last, but last week you were saying that there were all these big moments that that don't feel earned. And yeah. for me, everyone's like, everyone's like, we needed this victory for the Starks. We needed the Starks to win. And I'm not opposed to the Starks winning. I just don't feel like this victory was at all earned. It, like nothing they did, except for Sansa being a withholding asshole and letting a lot of people die, uh, earned them that vicar- victory. And uh, you know, what was I going to say about that? Yeah, I mean, oh, when you, oh yeah. well, like, well, we can we can save the Silverian, but the fact that like none of the major characters, and I don't count Rickon or One One as major characters, the fact that all these like well known characters went into battle and there were no lethal consequences is crazy to me. Like, I'm not saying John had to die, but like a lieutenant should have died, a Davos or a Tormund should, and I wasn't actively rooting for any of them because I love them, but like there should have been some consequences to. John's stupidity and Sansa's withholding information, there should have been some lethal consequences beyond Rickon because, as we all agree, Rickon was going to die anyway. So well, my, my pushback on that is uh, I just want to make sure we don't conflate like high stakes or consequences with death, right? I, you're okay with uh, people not dying so long as there is some kind of consequence for people's actions, right? Um, in general, but if it's a huge battle where you're outmanned and you're nearly trampled to death and, and like, everything is against you, the fact that your main characters all, um, like, emerge unscathed, uh, that saw, seems we saw really in, unrealistic to me. We saw this in Blackwater, too, though. You know, uh, most of the people survived that. And in fact, there was, like, a last-second save of Cersei almost dying, right? Right. Um, but uh, the only person who really got injured from the main characters was Tyrion in the face. And that's it, you know. So, are you saying that you didn't like that either, or are you saying that that was okay for some reason and this isn't? The like the stakes never felt quite as like uh, no one ever felt quite as unmatched as John and his like very close friends did at the center of that scrum. 
Gotcha. Right? Like, I don't, you know, like Tyrion gets sliced down, yes, and saved by Pod, etc. Uh, like, Davos loses his sons, and that's, you know, sad. We didn't really know his sons or whatever, but nobody has ever. They, quite, had, the, they had that emotional talk as, on the ship. <laughs> <laughs> but no one was ever quite as, like, out of their depth as John is in that moment, and sometime, somehow he and Davos and Tormund all survive. And Melisandre and Lyanna and Sansa and Littlefinger. You know, it's just, uh, I feel like, I feel like, and this is, this is to the larger point, and this is something that our listeners first pointed out to me, which is that a lot of characters have been brought back this season only to be killed off right away. We had like Osha or the Blackfish or Rickon. Like Rickon, I don't think had any lines this season, but we're supposed to care deeply about his death when we haven't seen him in years. And he had no chance to sort of establish himself this season as someone we care about. And we care about him because John cares about him. But John and Rickon never shared a single second of screen time before this episode. So, uh, like, the stakes feel engineered to me. Mm. Uh, did you feel more at the death of Rickon or at the death of One One the Giant? Uh, one One the Giant has had more lines and screen time in the last uh, few seasons. So <laughs> he has had more lines, a.k.a. one line. Yeah. Um, but Yeah, I mean, I really felt for One One. I thought that it, it didn't make sense to me that Ramsey would kill One One. Like, if he had one arrow, right. why would he kill One One and not John? That and not make- John, who wasn't even looking at him? Yeah, it made no sense to me. But, no, it didn't. Uh, that, that was the only moment in the episode where I think I really agreed with you there um, about people doing stupid things other than John charging into battle and Sansa withholding. Uh, but uh, yeah, other than that, I think that the battle was so technically dazzling that I was able to forgive uh, some of the issues that you describe of the ending feeling a bit unearned. Um, well, and, uh, you and I had a similar disagreement uh, in season four, uh, Battle of Castle Black, where you liked the spectacle, the spectacle was more rewarding to you than it was to me. Yeah, um, and I think this was less about spectacle and more about like, re- like, because it wasn't, it wasn't so like grand. It was like very gritty and down to earth. And like Weiss and Benioff are claiming that no one's ever done a battle like quite at this, where you feel the down to earth level and the scope of it. I, and I might agree with them. Um, but you know, for me, the battle of, uh, Castle Black, the big issue was like mammoths and scythes and all of that stuff just felt like too big and cartoony to me. Uh, this did feel more grounded and more down to earth, but in general, I think spectacle matters, uh, like very little to me right. and I might be in the minority about that. So. Yeah, I, I guess the only thing I would say is I feel like what they achieved in this episode was singular in a way that. You know, season four, episode nine, or whatever was was not. I mean, uh, the Battle of Castle Black was pretty good. You know, it was fine. It was it had some really awesome elements to it. It was a uh, average to above average episode of Game of Thrones in, in terms of the spectacle that it delivered. This is something I feel like has rarely, if ever, been seen at this scale on television before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, just the sheer audacity of it and the the technical excellence with which it was executed earned enough credit for me that I was just kind of in awe for the whole episode. Because it wasn't as though people were behaving in completely nonsensical ways, other than maybe the Sansa thing, which I keep bringing up as a as a caveat. But, you know, John charging in and being stupid, and then John surviving and Tormund surviving, you know, they're both great warriors. It wasn't as though 
wildly implausible things happened, in my opinion. And if they what, had, what about what about Davos at the very like beginning of the season's like, I'm not a very good fighter and I don't have all my fingers, so this is gonna be ugly, guys. Apologies. And yet survived hand to hand combat on the battlefield. Mm, okay. maybe you have a point there. Maybe you have a point. Uh but I guess what I'm saying is overall it wasn't as though, hey, wow, that made absolutely no sense. Like other decisions this season have felt to me, right? Um, like the decision to keep John's body and bring him back, you know, or try to bring him back. Um, so uh, for those reasons, uh, it was just so impressive and so unlike anything we've seen before on television and even on Game of Thrones that uh, I was willing to forgive a lot of the problems. Um and yeah, they they simply did not bother me as much. And, and I can see a scenario where the problems would have been so egregious that they bothered me. But I don't think they they took that path. Um, but uh, I think yeah, we disagree on this, Joanna. And I have a feeling uh, other people have made their opinions known to you as well, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, but it, you know it's been mixed. So there's plenty of people who agree with me, and plenty of people who disagree with me. And I'm always fine with people disagreeing with me as long as they do it yeah. respectfully. Do it nice. Do it nice. Uh, yeah. um, and should we talk? Do we want to talk about Sansa and Ramsay? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things you weren't a fan of was how Sansa kind of lost her agency last season, and mm-hmm. now she finally gets to have her revenge uh, in a way that I think is deliciously poetic. Uh, no pun intended. What did you think of uh, the final scene? <laughs> You're like, are you at least happy about this, Joanna? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> no. Uh, no. I, I, I think she should have had him publicly executed. Because I think to have him to sink to his level this way um, is just showing how much that he's like warped her. To execute him in the most Ramsey, bolton way possible. Um I think I loved her speech to him. That was really great. But I, I would have liked it a lot better if she had just executed him cleanly in the courtyard like her dad would have. I mean, the big struggle is like I get I get upset when the Stark kids aren't behaving like their dad would. But then their dad lost the Game of Thrones pretty hard. So like if the Stark kids need to change in order to survive, like maybe I can't get upset about that. But it distresses me every time I see them stray away from the way in which their parents tried to raise them. Our time together is about to come to an end. That's all right. You can't kill me. I'm part of you now. Your words will disappear. Your house will disappear. Your name will disappear. All memory of you will disappear. I actually think that's a really uh, effective part of the show is that, yeah, she she has become much more cruel and cunning and vicious in the, inter- in the intervening five years since uh, she was just a regular Stark at Winterfell in season one. And, I've, you know, I think that's part of what the show is trying to say. And, and you may not like that, but I feel like it's at least done plausibly in the show right i mean well, I, I struggle with it is what mm-hmm. i'm saying like i don't know 
I guess I don't know what the overall message is going to be. Is it going to be better to try to be as starkish as possible, which is kind of what John is doing, like John's dressing like Ned or Arya reclaiming her Stark name or Bran heading home? Like, is the is that the better thing to do? Or is it better to be like Sansa and go off the off the Stark path and, you know, absorb the lessons of the Baelishes and the Boltons and, and be more like that? I, I, you know, I don't know. Like, ultimately, Sansa might pay the price for this because the ultimate lesson might be the Stark way is the right way. I don't know. We'll have to see. Right. But I, I mean, I think the show has made pretty clear that the Stark way in general has not gone well for people. This in uh, the past, in the past. Right. But I, I don't know if like maybe the tide is like, turning like, now. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know. No, that, that's that's a decent point. Uh, and I guess the only thing I would say, Joanna, is that like this strikes me as kind of similar to the whole uh, Batman Begins conundrum. You know, uh, did you see that movie Batman Begins? I assume you have, right? Yes, of course. Uh, So at the end of the movie, there's this whole big deal about how Batman doesn't kill anyone, right? And at the end of the movie, Batman says, you know, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you either. And then he just flies off the back of this train and leaves uh, his his enemy to die in the train. And there's there's a big debate about whether or not he was actually killing that dude or not, right? And I guess I would raise the same issue here is that Sansa didn't, you know, personally flay Ramsay with a knife herself. She merely turned Ramsay's own uh, weapons against him. Like she used Ramsay's own viciousness and recklessness against him. Uh, and so to, to that extent, I would say maybe there, she is less kind of culpable in this situation than she would be if she had personally you know executed. but it's not it's not culpability because like i think okay a couple things someone opened those kennel doors so like <laughs> she took no some i think they just part. found their way there automatically oh, okay like. <laughs> but also like the first lesson we learned in the first episode is that according to like ned stark at winterfell like you pass a sentence you swing the sword like you do it like it's important to do it mm, yourself yeah because you take the responsibility of ending a life. So this sort of like passive, slippery, plausible deniability, I don't know, the hounds just found their way in there, um, is the way that if we are to believe the Stark way is the right way, uh, her way is the wrong way. Now you make a really good, like we could all make a really good case that the Stark way will get you killed. Uh, John was pretty Starkish and he almost got killed. So like, Sure. So uh, but, I think what you're saying is that like the Stark way is, is one with honor, and that wouldn't just relegate a person to be, right. you know, torn apart by dogs. Right. right. They, they would do it. He would do it yeah. cleanly. And I mean, of course, Sansa is fucked up. Of course, after all she's gone through, she's fucked up. And I understand why a lot of people were like, yes, she got his own dogs to eat him. That's awesome. And like her little <laughs> smile at the end. Like I get that. That was get, a good imitation of me, by the way. <laughs> I get that. I get the like sort of want for that kind of vindictive revenge since she was used so poorly. But uh, is that ultimately good for her as a character? Is that the healthiest thing for her to do? Right. Do you know? And I like, I don't mean that in a condescending way. I just, I want Sansa to like heal and move on for this. I don't want her to become like the next Ramsay. Right. Uh, so, yeah. And, you know, and but maybe that is what the creators or George R. R. Martin has in store for her it, is that she will be. become. And then you're, you're not saying necessarily that it's poorly executed, just no. that you don't 
that's I don't not, derive like joy yeah. and satisfaction from yeah. seeing a character that I care about do something, you know, so emotionally yeah, compromised. Right. Yeah. 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 No, fair enough. So it's not implausible. Like, I agree with you that it's plausible that you would want to do it that way, of course. But, um, and I, th- I think that's ultimately the test for me, right? Is, is does this feel organic to the character? And throughout the whole season, that's what I've been harping on is does it feel organic? Is it well, like, is it built up to like what's happening on screen? And I feel like the Sansa stuff is, you know, I, and, uh, I don't, I don't know that I agree with you uh, about, uh, how much of a turn this means for a character, but I think, I think the showrunners do think that, yeah, this, well, I agree with you that it is a turn for a character. I don't know that I agree with you that I think it's a bad thing. You know, um, the showrunners were saying in the, after the episode, inside the episode featurette, how, uh, like she has a little ghost of a smile when she's walking away and it's just kind of an indication of how much she's changed since she was a, a bratty teenage girl in season one. Um, yeah. And they said that this was their favorite thing that Sophie Turner had ever done. And, and like, I don't disagree in that Sophie Turner was great in that scene. Yeah. Like she was fantastic in that scene. So I just, I just didn't love the scene. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Totally fair. Totally fair. Uh, I did also appreciate the scene where, uh, John's like right before this, where Jon Snow is like approaching Ramsay Bolton and starts wailing on him. Firstly, I don't even know how they did that stuff with the arrows. Is that explained in the um, anatomy of the episode featurette? No, because John has a shield and he's catching arrows with it that that Ramsay is is uh, shooting at him. Yeah, and uh, it looks very realistic. It looks like they actually did it. My guess is. Like uh, I, I, that, they had the arrows already there in the shield, and then they like CG'd them flying into it. Is my guess, but um, I have no idea. I'm very like it looked great. Then John Snow wails on uh, Ramsey, and he sees Sansa. And I guess the the connection there is that like he realizes that this isn't his life to take. I didn't really like that's what the showrunner said. I didn't really get that when I was watching the episode. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it certainly I makes feel like sense. That, yeah, I feel like that was external uh, explanation that we wouldn't have picked up otherwise um, or conclusively anyway. Right. Um, because I thought her reaction would be, no, it's okay. You can keep going. You know, like it's cool. Yeah, like her face wasn't reading to me like, stop, that's my kill. Yeah, yeah. And his face wasn't reading to me, oh, this is your kill. Granted, he was under like two inches of mud and blood. But uh <laughs> the inside the episode or, or the anatomy of the scene said that they, that they had Kit hitting um, Eowyn Round. I get his name wrong every time. Don't correct me. Uh, for like a day from every <laughs> angle for a day. Uh, and, and Kit Harrington said once he accidentally actually punched him in the face and had to buy him a pint, but uh, you know, that they just wanted to get this like just, cut from every single angle um yeah and oh oh little two little details one when john picks the shield to fight off the arrows it's a mormont shield so that means someone from house mormont made it into winterfell which given that there were only like 62 of them (laughs) good job good job (laughs) team mormont uh and then also sansa says this thing to ramsey where she's like your dogs have been fed haven't been fed for seven days you said but she had actually like ridden away from the parlay at the point where he said that. So unless John came back and he's like, "Oh my God, you won't believe what Ramsey said." <laughs> he said he hasn't fed his dogs in like seven days. Uh, then there's no way Sansa could have known that. Mm. So whatever. I, I, I think that's a that's a minor nit, but uh, you know what? I'm I'm not going to stop you from picking those nits, Joanna, because I love to do the same. 
Yeah, it um, just makes makes you look like the, the original one this week. Yes, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> I, this is such a luxurious feeling. Uh, so overall thoughts on the episode, Joanna Robinson, what'd you think? Oh, well, so I said on Twitter that I give it a B and I will stick by that. Uh, very impressive. Technically, uh, some good, some good character moments, some abysmal character moments. And overall, I just don't feel like the story supported the like beautiful martial arts display that they put on. Hmm. Uh, I thought it was incredible and yeah, there was a lot of problems, but, um, how impressive it was totally overshadowed uh, any of, of the issues. Most of the character actions felt well-motivated and like the track had been laid and now it's finally being paid off. Um, so A lot of people are saying, best Game of Thrones episode ever. Best episode of TV ever. I, I would not go quite that far. Um, I don't think it's the best Game of Thrones episode ever because you know, I think w- what's interesting about the show is that it has often elided uh, these battles, right? Earlier on seasons one and two, they would rarely show these battles. Uh, I mean, we saw Blackwater in uh, episode nine, season two, right? Yeah, right. but they like skipped the Battle of the Whispering Wood or like knocked Tyrion out. In season- I think it's mostly a season one budget problem. Yeah, and yeah. They knocked Tyrion out and then he woke up and they're like, hey, we had a battle. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and contemplate the fact that I don't think the show really suffered for it, right? Because no. yeah. um, those aren't, in general, the most interesting parts of Game of Thrones. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So when we get to these battle episodes and you're like, the spectacle, I'm like, but the characters. Like, isn't the character more important? And, and like, do we really feel like this episode honored the characters? I would say 75% it honored the characters. I would say, for the most part, it honored the characters. Um, even though what it did with the characters might not necessarily be pleasant or things that we like, I didn't think any of it felt inorganic, or most of it I didn't feel was inorganic. So, but, you know, point taken, Joanna, that, like, that's not the most. That's not the greatest part of Game of Thrones. It's not battle sequences. Um, and uh, sure, sure, there have been great battle sequences. But when I look back on my favorite things of Game of Thrones, it's like if I had to rewatch, you know, ten scenes over again. Yeah, maybe Hard Home would be one of them. But like the vast majority of them would not be battles. It would be these tense confrontations people have. This amazing dialogue. Um, it would be Lyanna Mormont. You know tearing everyone a new asshole. It'd be stuff like that that just is unexpected that you can't see anywhere else. And this episode gave us stuff we can't see other places, but did it very, very well. And for that, I, I give the show my props and, uh, and really enjoyed it. I would give it an A-, minus. You know, I, I wouldn't give it an A+, plus, but I thought it was really well done and uh, so much to love here. So uh, I think I was a bigger fan of it than you. Uh, <laughs> I think we can both agree, however, that, man, how are they going to tie everything up next episode? <laughs> right? they, got a lot, they got a lot to do, man. It's an extra long running time next yeah. week. Uh, but, they, yeah, they got a lot to do. So we'll see. Do you have any uh, – I, I guess I usually like to ask you like about next episode, and sometimes you can't tell me. Uh, let me ask you, do you think we'll know what happens at the Tower of Joy next episode? Yes. Oh, you think we'll find out? Yes. Crazy. Okay. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, if, to me, the base. Well, we don't usually talk about the next time on preview, right? Correct. Should we skip that? Uh, I would like to, but we can. If you want to say <laughs> that you're going to give it away, 
then I'm okay with that. So if you want to give away what's in the next time on preview, I'm cool with it because we only got one episode left. I'll just say one one part of it, one small part of it, Please. which which is that we've got uh, the part I'm most curious about is we've got Jamie and the phrase having like a banquet, which at what looks like River Run, and with Walter Frey saying like the phrase and the Lannister sends their regards. And I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm really nervous. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Interesting. That's, that's the finale uh, plot that I'm most intrigued by, weirdly, because it's, like, not got most of our main characters in it. But, yeah. All right. Well, tune in next week, ladies and gentlemen, to hear uh, what happens on next week's Game of Thrones. In the meantime, uh, John Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the Internet this week? I mean, you can find me talking crap on this episode of Game of Thrones. No, no. I think <laughs> some of what I wrote was quite measured. Uh, over on VanityFair.com, or you can follow me on Twitter and yell at me uh, at Joe Wrote This. Uh, or you can hear me talk about uh, all, all kinds of spoilers over on the Storm of Spoilers podcast, uh, where we talk about Game of Thrones and other things. And find all my stuff at DaveChen.me. You can also watch a movie I made called The Primary Instinct at ThePrimaryInstinct.com. It's also on Hulu right now. If you're in the United States and have Hulu, you can watch The Primary Instinct there. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of A Cast of Kings. We'll see you guys next week.